Bible this morning, you can turn uh, to the beginning of the book, uh, to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. Love to, love to hear and to see the fellowship happening. Genesis 32, we're, um, we're kicking off uh, a new sermon series. It's going to be a short one uh, on a house of prayer. And, and that, that involves the fact that God refers to his people as a house of prayer. And when we think of prayer, we often think of that religious kind of like just kind of doing our duties, throwing our petitions, you know, to God or maybe asking him to intervene in what are most often are just inconveniences in life. You know, it's it tends to be just to be straight. It tends to be quite shallow. Uh, and if I could say it this way, it tends to be a bit religious or we're just going through motions. Uh, but God calls us to something far more. Right. It, there, there's depth when we think about being God's people, a house of prayer. Uh, that, that's an incredible category that God is calling us into because prayer has dimensions to it. It goes deep at times. It stretches us at other times. And sometimes it is, it is just the, what we would refer to as just kind of the menial requests. And yet God still comes. But we want to realize that to be a people of prayer involves far more. Um, and God calls us into that. So we'll, uh, what we're going to be doing in this series is not necessarily like parsing out prayer theologically, but we're going to go to some Old Testament texts and actually look at the vignettes of different individuals' lives where, where prayer happened, right? Because when we jump into story rather than just theological category, what we actually then begin to experience is like our hearts being laid bare because we get something of their story. Their story isn't something so unique. What they're feeling is what I feel in so many ways. And their relationship with God, man, I feel that in my relationship to God. And in so many ways, the, the story can teach us well just what it means to be a people of prayer, a house of prayer. So Genesis 32 is where we're starting. Uh, we're going to consider Jacob wrestling with God. Prayer is sometimes a wrestling match. Right? Prayer is sometimes a wrestling match. And that's actually the picture, by the way. That's the picture that's given to us here in this little story of Jacob wrestling with God. Uh, the idea is to say, this is part of, of your relationship with him. This is part of communion with him. It will at times be a wrestling match. So Genesis chapter 32, verse 22, it says this, the same night he arose and took his two wives, not a good thing, by the way, <laughs> his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go 
until you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. All right, let's pray, and then we'll jump into it together. Father, we, we come to you even now, and we thank you. Um, God, that you are okay with our mess. In fact, you oftentimes, even like you did in Jacob's life, intervene in his life to make some mess, but ultimately that mess then is for the sake that we might truly enjoy uh, your blessing. The blessing which is often just your presence, a true relationship with you. So God, thank you that you come after us. Thank you that you open our eyes and hearts to what truly matters, even after we've been striving and wrestling with many other things in this life. You come, and you at times will wrestle us so that we might know the blessing of your presence. So God, give us grace even now as we consider your word. Challenge our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I would have to say that much of our life can involve contending or wrestling for meaning, for acceptance, for approval, um, for someone just to come alongside us in some way and say, well done, you're valuable to me, you, you, you matter to me, um, and, and I, I think this tendency, this desire for meaning and significance is particularly unique for us as Americans. Um, uh, for instance, I think we see it uh, in the fact that as Americans, we are statistically a burned out people. We are achievers. We want to feel significance. We want to attain meaning. For instance, Forbes mentioned in an article last year, it stated this. It stated, studies show that Americans work longer hours and have more stress-related illness than their European and Japanese counterparts. Now, of course, there's many factors to why that is. I mean, we, we're in an age of a technology boom and communication, and that plays into it. Uh, and there's also, for some companies and whatnot, poor, poor policies, right, to really give rest uh, to their employees. Sometimes it's our own personal issue of personal care and dieting. But the biblical worldview would at least tell us that, in part, that part of the problem of our burnout and our endless strivings is that we are a people hardwired for meaning and significance in this life. We think we have to earn significance and meaning through striving, th 
through accomplishments or working our hands down to the bone, for instance. We will strive to find some sense of approval, even at the cost of our own well-being, sometimes even at the cost of others' well-being. We strive, we contend for meaning, and yet, even as we see in a story like this, God says, I'm the one you are actually truly after. C.S. Lewis, as we've mentioned before, says it this way. He says, if you've never found ultimate meaning in this life, through work, through sex, through relationships, etc., then it's safe to bet that you were created for something more. Right? And so the point being this morning is this. You won't find true blessing in your life. You won't find true significance and meaning. You won't find your true identity in this life until you contend for communion with God. Even God puts that out before us. Jeremiah 29, he says, You who seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. In other words, God wants to be found, but it, he's oftentimes found through us seeking after him, wrestling in some sense with him, going after him with all our heart. Folks, uh, this is what we expressly find in the story of Jacob. We just What we just read is actually the kind of climactic point in Jacob's life. Um, so here's what I want to do is just do a sweep through his life to kind of get you caught up to what's actually happening in the moment so that we might see that, yes, blessing in this life doesn't come until we actually contend for communion with God. From birth, you guys, most of you know these stories, right? But from birth, Jacob was the epitome of our own wrestlings for significance and blessing. Some of you know, you know, it's Jacob is a twin, twin brother to Esau. Um, and even then, in the womb of his mother, Rebekah, there's this point, I believe it's in um, Genesis 25, where Rebekah, as she's pregnant, she's crying out to God, saying, what is happening to me? Why? Because the kids, the twins, in her stomach are wrestling with one another. And she's so concerned, she's so afraid of what's actually going on that she's crying out to God. And it's in this moment that something incredible happens. God speaks to Rebecca and reveals that in her womb are two nations. And God promises the older one is going to serve the younger one. And God states that not not because he knows how circumstance will unfold, but he states that because he's actually chosen Jacob to be the one who carries the blessing. <coughs> he's going to actually be the one who receives the blessing, the, the promises given to Abraham, then given to Isaac, now will go through not the oldest son, Esau, but it'll come to Jacob. In other words, God had already given Jacob the blessing. The promise was his. But then his life begins to unfold, even from birth. You know the story, right? Jacob, his name means deceiver he's, he, or supplanter, right? He's the one who strives to get his own way. And so his name has a lot to do with his own story. And so even when it comes to birth, what is Jacob doing but as Esau's born, now he's grabbing a hold of the heel of, of Esau. 
And th there he is. We begin to see the beginnings of this man's strivings. He's grasping a hold of his older brother's heel. Folks, when it comes down to it, I, I just want to interject that we are much the same. We, we think, although the promise, the blessing has been given to us freely, we think in so many ways we still have to strive to attain it. Even from the womb, Jacob is works-based in how he's finding significance and meaning. He's works-based in how he's finding significance and meaning. And it only intensifies throughout his life. As you know, as the kids grow up, he saw Jacob grow up. It comes time where Isaac's about to keel over. Isaac's blind, and it's time to give away the inheritance, right? And so in these moments, what takes place is Esau goes out to do his manly hunting stuff, bring back some meat uh, to the family. And during this time, it's Jacob that dresses up as Esau and deceives Isaac so that Isaac gives the inheritance not to Esau, but to Jacob. Now, part of the inheritance are the blessings, are the promises of God that came to Abraham, then to Isaac. Now, Isaac is offloading these blessings to the next generation. It's not just about, hey, here's a bunch of stuff, right? The idea is that the divine blessings now are being handed to the next generation. And in these moments, although Jacob has already been promised those, those blessings, there he is striving for it. He's deceiving his own dad in order to attain these blessings. It's works-based. He's working so hard to attain what God says, I'm going to freely give you anyhow. So what you have then is obviously Esau comes back. And what we have is a Philly family fallout, right? Esau wants to kill Jacob. And so the very blessings, and if you remember what the blessings are to Abraham, it's about a land, it's about a nation, right? It's about this offspring that's going to come and be a blessing to the world. And, and, and so in these moments, the very land that he has now inherited, he's on the run from because Esau is attempting to kill his brother. So that's like situation kind of like number two that we begin to see in Jacob's life. He's a deceiver. He's works-based. He's trying to earn that which comes freely. Now, as Jacob is on the run, he begins to say, well, might as well pick up a wife while I'm at it, right? So he, he meets Laban, who has some daughters, right, if you know the story. And, and what we find in Laban is that Laban is a rival in deceit, right? He's one who can actually contend with Joseph in his deception. And so what does Jacob See, he sees Rachel, and she's beautiful, and man, I have to have her as my wife. And Laban says, uh, work seven years for me, and I'll give you my daughter. So he does it. He puts in this blood, sweat, and tears, right? And he does it, and, and come to the end of the seven years, and instead of giving Rachel, what does he do? He gives Leah. There's Laban. And Laban's actually then going to get another seven years out of Jacob. 
right? If you really want Rachel, give me another seven years. And so you watch these strivings, right? They're contending against one another. They're deceiving one another. And so what does he do? He works seven more years, eventually gets Rachel as his wife. Things seem to be good, but of course, Jacob ain't going to leave it at that. So tit for tat. He then does some pretty shifty business deals with Laban and ends up taking a bunch of his property, right? And once again, by the end of that whole situation, Jacob's on the run again. He's on the run. Doesn't life ever feel like that? <laughs> on the run again, Lord, like what is up, right? He was running from Esau. Now he's running from Laban. And so what does Jacob then decide to do? This is 30 years removed from where he actually left Esau in the first place. Right? He decides, well, maybe it's time to head back to the land that my father had given me. And so as he now has an entourage, he has multiple wives, many children, the whole crew, and they're heading back into the land. And all of a sudden, he hears that Esau is coming out to meet him with 400 men. Now you, like, talk about a street fight, right? <laughs> this is no joke. Things are about to go down. He's bringing 400 dudes with him, right? And so immediately Jacob's feeling like my life is now going to be on the line. And Jacob's fretting for his life. And he's, he's doing all these interesting things, even working up to this point in which this, this mysterious man shows up and wrestles with him. Uh, but he's doing all these different tactics. He sends gifts ahead to Esau while he kind of stands back. It's, a, it, it's his, he's working the angle, right? He's trying to like cut the edge off of Esau's anger, thinking like some of these gifts are going to appease Esau. And then what he does is, as, as he, again, he's fretting for his life. And so he splits his crew up one side on one side of the river and another side on the other side of the river, thinking that if Esau comes and actually conquers their little group, he's only going to get half of the crew, and the other half can leave. So Jacob's he's working all these angles. And then this particular evening, he puts his head down to sleep. Amidst a life of deception, amidst a life of running, now he puts down his head to sleep, and he is a desperate man. His life, most likely in the morning, will be taken. And yet it's in these moments that we begin to see and learn some lessons then of what it means to be a people of prayer. Right? Prayer is not just the religious thing where we just go through the motions. It is deep communion with God. And so we learn a few lessons, two lessons in particular as we kind of work through this text. The first lesson is this, that God's blessing is often released into our lives through communion with him. Just notice the broad principle at play. Before actually diving down to the details of what's happening in this text, just consider the broad principle at play. This night of wrestling will lead to blessing. This night of wrestling leads to blessing. In verse 29, the result of these moments of interaction, interaction with God, results in the fact that the man blessed 
Jacob. It's a fundamental principle throughout Scripture that through prayer, through communion with God, God intends to dispense upon us his blessings. Now, we know that Jacob has been chosen to carry the blessings, but he doesn't truly appropriate those blessings or lay hold of those blessings until he encounters God through a night of prayer. God releases, he dispenses his blessings on us through prayer. We see this even in the New Testament. If you fast forward and say, okay, what did, what did Jesus say? You know, there were, those are weird Old Testament times. Now what is it for us, right? Well, Jesus will say in Mark chapter 11, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you will receive it and it will be yours. Luke, or Luke 11, Jesus says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek. And you will find, knock, and it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, who come to Him in prayer? James will say, you have not because what? You ask not. You didn't come to Him in prayer. You didn't contend for the blessing. God intends to dispense His blessing on a praying people, a people who come to him and ask. Folks, there are some 3,000 promises in Scripture, many of which are promises for you. But what we often do is leave these promises, in some sense, unclaimed. It's kind of like the $6 billion worth of gift cards that go unclaimed every year. The benefits have already been purchased, but they remain unclaimed, right? For all of us, we know this on this side of the cross, all God's promises in Christ are yes and amen. But to lay hold of those promises means that we must be a people of prayer. We must go to him. We must ask of him. We must seek after him. God's blessings will often be released to us when God's people pray, when we seek to commune with him. I got a book up here, which comes from a guy named Tim Kirk. Uh, not the old Flyers player. All right. um, Tim Kerr is a, a pastor in Sovereign Grace uh, who has a heart for prayer and intercession. And so it was about four months ago that Tim came to me and said, hey, man, like God's putting your congregation on my heart and I want to give you a bunch of these books. These books are simply passages. They're loaded with scripture, loaded with promises, loaded with the blessings of God. But what he's done is he's condensed them down into a book. So this can be something of kind of like a prayer manual. So you can look into the book and and claim the promises there. Claim them for yourself and claim them for your children and claim them for the church and claim them for this neighborhood and beyond, right? It's actually just a perfect little tool to be able to lay hold of the promises of God. So afterwards, uh, I don't know, I, don't, I didn't even count these, but maybe one per family. Grab, grab one of these after uh, the gathering uh, this morning. So that's lesson one. It's the general principle that we see at work 
in this text. God's blessings are often released to us when God's people pray or seek to commune with him. But second, and this is just, I'm just tweaking the first lesson a little bit. God's blessing is often released into our lives through contending for communion with him. Verse 24 says, and a man wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of day. This was an all-out battle. This wasn't just kind of like a little sibling moment where, you know, you go at one another for a bit. No, this was all night long. This was a battle. This was kind of a full round octagon ground and pound battle. It was no small thing. And so here is what we find is Jacob is fighting for his life. It ain't Esau, but it's someone, and there's mystery to the someone. And so Jacob was once running for his life, and now in this moment he is fighting for this life, fighting for his life. Verse 30 will actually recognize Jacob will call this place Peniel because he saw God face to face and yet declares, and yet my life was delivered. He's fighting for his life in these moments. You ever feel like prayer is like that for you? God, I'm fighting for my life. I'm desperate. I'm desperate. I'm desperate for you. That's the context here. Praying all night long, engaging with God all night long. And it says that Jacob was prevailing, but morning was coming. Right? So what does the man do? But the man touches Jacob's hip. And the word is literally like tap. I just like, so here's this all-out battle, this skirmish that's happening, and, and in a moment, Jacob's hip is put out of joint. Just with a simple tap, which demonstrates the fact, like, whoever this mystery man is, which we eventually see is God, right? Because Jacob says, I've seen God face to face. It's almost like God met him in his own struggles. He met him on his level. He contended with uh, Jacob on his level, but as then sun's coming, right, and no one should see the face of God and, and live, and so God in these moments is saying, I got to roll, all right? Light is coming. You can't see my face. In these moments, he touches his hip, right? Incredible agony, <laughs> incredible pain in these moments, and, and yet, what does Jacob do? Does he fold to the pressure? Does he fold to the pain? He contends all the more. Check it out. In these moments, he's not filled with utter pain. His hip is out of joint, for crying out loud. He, he just lost his leg. But what also is happening is he knows that if I see the face of God, I will not live. If I keep holding on to this guy, it will mean my death. Jacob knows what's on the line. In other words, he is contending with God to gain the blessing even at the expense of his own life. I'm going to give myself, I'm going to hold on for all that I can. I will put my life on the line in order to get blessing from God. Now, when we think about what's happening, maybe just to draw out a couple quick principles. 
And it's this, that as we contend with God in prayer, God will often break you in order to bless you. He'll often put your life out of joint. He'll bring you to a place of realized and perpetual weakness. Jacob now will walk with a limp for the rest of his life. He will have to embrace weakness now for the rest of his life. But weakness is oftentimes the very thing that God will then dispense his grace into. He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who are weak. He gives grace to those who actually own up to their own brokenness. And therefore, God will often break you in order to bless you. Break you in order to bless you. Just like James 4 says, James 4 says you... Um, you have not because you ask not, but then it goes on to say, because you're just going to waste it on your own stupid pleasures. You're just using God to get what you want for yourself. It really doesn't become about a true relationship with him. It just becomes about you using God to get what you want from him. And that's the whole point here. God will oftentimes break you. He will bring you to a place of weakness. He will bring you to a place of humility. He will bring you to a place of actually admitting, I got nothing apart from you. So, so give, me, give me the things I, I need physically, but God, if I don't have you, what do I have? God will often break you in order to bless you. The second principle that we see in some of this is that God will not only break you to bless you, but he will often call you to lose your life in order to gain your life. After Jacob won't let go, what does this man, this God-man, say? He says, verse 27, it's a strange moment. What is your name? This is not some sort of like in the midst of, you know, the the... The battle, just having a moment of, hey, let's kind of interact with one another and have a casual greeting. Let's get to know one another all of a sudden. That's not the case here. What is happening is that God is calling Jacob to confess who he truly is. Jacob means what? Deceiver. God is calling on Jacob to actually confess who he really is as the liar, the deceiver, the one who strives against men, this man who is, in so many ways, works-based. He's got to do the work to gain his own sense of significance and meaning in this life. And God is saying, no, you got to admit that to me. Even as Jacob went in unto Isaac, he deceived him. Before his father, he's saying, I'm Esau. I'm Esau. I'm the child that you approve of. It was a lie. It was deception. And now this God-man is saying, what's your name? I want to see your confession. I want to see that you're actually going to acknowledge who you've been all your life. Who are you? And Jacob speaks his name. Now, when Jacob speaks his name, it is not just throwing his name out there in some casual way. What he is actually saying 
is that I've been a fool all of my life. And this, this is what I've longed for all of my life. Here is the approval that I sought from my father's face. Here is the love that I was looking for in Rachel's face. Here is the mercy that I've hoped for in Esau's face. God, you are what I need. That's what he's saying in these moments. I've been a deceiver. I've been a fool all my life. But now this is what I realize I need. God is calling on Jacob to lose himself in order to gain himself. And on the other end of this, Jacob is a changed man. He's a changed man. He walks with a limp, a limp that reminds him of his weakness, but he's a changed man. And God says from now on, you will no longer be called Jacob, but you'll be called Israel. You're going to take my name, Jacob. The idea then, of course, is that When it comes to taking on God's name, Israel means one who contends with God. Or you could even say one who contends for God. He's now a man who's not striving for his own sense of significance and approval from dad. No, what actually is happening is that he has found God who is his significance, who is his approval, who is everything that he needs. And he's willing to contend. He's willing to contend for communion with God willing to hold on to him, even at the risk of his own life, that he might be blessed with God's own presence. Folks, this is what prayer often is. It is the way in which we wrestle God into our lives. It's the way we contend for communion with God. Sometimes God surprises us by throwing us into the octagon, sneaking up on us like he did with Jacob. Another time, he he stands back and he says, will you come after me? Will you fight for me? Will you wrestle to attain me? As we contend with God in prayer, God will oftentimes then demonstrate blessing to us. And God, we could say it this way, God prizes this kind of prayer. He prizes it. He loves it. Kids who come after him, come after him, come after him, come after him. We, we get sick of the little kid pulling on the, the, the pant leg. Dad, 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 dad. No, not for God. <laughs> God says, I love it. Keep tugging, keep pulling, keep striving for my attention. And and it's not as though he's just being tough with us. We see actually Jesus doing the same stuff in his earthly ministry. Uh, If you remember, Jesus tells the story of the widow who who goes to the judge and and, and says, "I, I have an adversary who stands against me. Can you deal with this judge? And the judge just kind of, you know, blows her off. Nah. But she keeps coming back, and she keeps coming back, and she keeps coming back. And the text says, because of her persistence, right, it's that the judge finally lends help to her. Jesus also gives the illustration of the friend at midnight, you know, who comes knocking on the, on the door, saying, hey, I got I some guests just rolled in. I need some food for them, some resource for them. And he keeps knocking and knocking and knocking until the other friend wakes up, right? 
And it's because of his impudence, right? Because of his persistence as well as the nature of the relationship that he gains the blessing so he can serve others. In other words, this is part of the Christian life. <laughs> it's part of contending, right? It's part of persistent prayer. It's part of prevailing in prayer. It, there's another interesting story as well. Um, in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a Seraphonician woman who comes to Jesus, right? And she's, she's asking that Jesus would cast a demon out of her son. Right? So she's coming desperate, but she's a Gentile. What does Jesus then say to her? He actually like stiff arms her a little bit. It's, it's really interesting. He kind of just, hey, look, there's, there's others that need to be tended to. And, and, and the phrasing that he gives her is almost like, uh, actually, the Jews are more important than the Gentiles. So like, just hold off, right? I got some other work to do. I mean, politically speaking, this was like, thick stuff to be talking about. This, this, you know, it sparks near the dynamite kind of a thing. Your, your Facebook thread is about to blow up because of what Jesus just said here. And so as he speaks this, what does she do? She contends with Jesus. She contends. She goes after him. And, and, and what's the point? Is Jesus just being like, you know, just not very nice, not very merciful? We thought you were merciful. We thought you were gracious. Why aren't you being gracious and merciful like you say you will? But oftentimes what God is doing is he's cultivating faith in us. Are you really coming after me for me? Or are you coming after me for the blessing? And even when you're coming after me for me, are you really willing to put your life on the line for me? Are you really willing to come after me? For the Seraphonician woman, it was like holding her back to see what she would do. Will you contend for my blessing? And folks, th this may sound weird, but the imagery as I've been studying through it just keeps coming to mind. It's like when a little calf is born, you know, and, and they oftentimes say as the calf is born, like if it doesn't get up on its own two feet pretty soon, like it ain't going to last. And so it needs to stand. It, it needs to get up soon. It needs to start wobbling around a little bit. And that's oftentimes the reality of what it, what it is when it comes to faith in Jesus that it's like he holds us back a little bit to see if we'll contend, to see if we'll actually stand in our faith, rather than just kind of being kind of just religious in our faith and just kind of, I'm just going to sit down. I'm not going to contend. I'm not going to really put my faith to work. While faith is a gift, Jesus says, put it to work. Contend for me. Come after me with all you got. Don't play this religious game. We're just kind of sitting back, taking it easy, going through routine. Yeah, we just do our religious stuff, and Jesus is just kind of out there, and when life gets a little inconvenienced, then we go to him in prayer. Like, he wants you to contend for him. He wants your attention. He wants you to hold on to him, even at the risk of your own life, that you might gain him. You must lose your life to gain your life. Folks, in so many ways, God is calling us into communion with him. Again, not just for cliche moments of prayer, but he's calling us to contend for communion with him. That's why some of us in the season right now are, are fasting. Um, fasting is not just like superficial piety. We don't just do it for like self-discipline. We do it 
because God, we need you. God, we want you. And even when it comes to our, our, our own desires and wants physically, I go, man, I should just have something to eat right now. It would be really good. Uh, but it's to say, God, I'm willing to put that aside to go after you. Every time I reach for food, and it, it's been many times where I see myself going, oh, no, I can't do that, right? And it, it's to redirect attention to God. God, I, I'm desperate for food, but I want to be desperate for you. I'm going to contend for communion with you, even if it comes at the price of physical weakness personally. I want, I want all the extra stuff that often clutters my heart to melt away in these moments so that I might have you. I don't want all these desires contending against you. No, I want to put these desires, so to speak, on the cross so I can get after you, so I can have deep communion with you. It doesn't mean that every season of life needs to be fasting and getting crazy about things, but there should be points and times in our lives where we slow down and say, God, what do we have if we don't have you? We need to go hard up and contend with him, perhaps even wrestle. And this is why I said earlier, this Christian life is a messy life. Hips pulled out of joint, right? Contending with God. It ain't all put together. It's late night wrestlings with God, and that's okay. Because it's in those moments that what does God do? <laughs> he gives us the blessing. Right? It's not about striving for significance and meaning and approval. Oh, man, what, what a false approval Jacob found in those moments where he received the blessing from Esau. And it's not just the moment of receiving stuff. It was where Esau would place his hands on the head of that child and, and enjoy, like, say, now what all that is mine is yours because you're a good kid. And I love to give it to you. It's this moment of incredible approval. Some of your hearts hunger, hunger deeply for that. Hunger deeply for approval. You go, 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 live, 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 work, work, work for some, uh, you know, for something of significance and meaning. All this works-based stuff where God says, would you just step into the ring with me? I will be your significance. I will be your meaning. I will give you a new identity, right? I will give you the approval. And how has all of that been won? Because God himself stepped into a ring, right? God himself came and lowered himself. The God-man, Jesus Christ, he came and he went to that cross and, and, he, and he, so to speak, wrestled with our sins, right? He wrestled with our sins penalty and he defeated it in full at the cross. And he overcame. He wrestled death. And he overcame death. And he wrestled, in some sense, the enemy, Satan, who stands against us in all of this. And he overcame. He overcame. It's his work that achieves what we so desperately desire. So it's with Jesus that the blessing comes free. Because he's paid the cost. So folks, in some way, I think this morning, if there is strivings in your heart, if you're contending to be something, find some measure of significance and meaning in something, and maybe it's like, maybe it's like Jacob, man. My, my dad never said I love you. My dad never laid his hand of approval on my, my head. You've always, your heart's always been broken and twisted up about that kind of stuff. 
Or maybe you're just you're working way too way too hard. It's not wrong to work hard, it's just wrong to work hard for the wrong reasons. Maybe you're just working hard. Or maybe, you know, we oftentimes use illustrations of more of the white collar kind of community. When it comes to the blue collar community, we, we, we call it survival. Just living check to check. But still, our hearts long for significance and meaning. Oftentimes, we just kind of slump down into our own depression and we stop striving for it. We're tired from the wrestling. We're tired from the deceit. We're tired from attempting to, to find our own significance and meaning. Just know. Whether it's a bunch of work or you're kind of slumped down in depression because you, you're tired of all the striving, Jesus has won for you. He's won it for you. It's not works-based. It comes freely. That's his mercy. That's his grace. He says, come on, contend. Step in to the ring with me. And I'll bless you. When it comes down to it, I pray that we as a church might contend for communion with God. That like Jacob, we would hold on to Christ with all our life because therein we'll inevitably find joy. Let's pray. Father, right now we just ask that your spirit would engage with our hearts. God, we don't want to go from here unchanged. Kind of like <laughs> Jacob, we, we want to wrestle a bit with you even now. We, we, we want to be like that young calf who actually gets up on those feet, starts moving. We want our faith to be established in you. We want to contend for more of you. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in our hearts even right now. Bring the things to mind that need to be brought to mind. I, I ask um, in some sense that you would work prophetically even now in our hearts and minds. You would draw to mind the very things that need to be laid at your feet. Oh, how we have sought for significance and meaning in this life. And yet, you give it to us freely. Jesus, we honor you as the one who's, who's done the wrestling for us. You've done the work on our behalf. 